This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today we are speaking with Charlie Willison, who is the author of Ungoverned and Out of Sight, Public Health and the Political Crisis of Homelessness in the United States from Oxford University Press. Charlie, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, if you would start us off by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how it is you came to this book. Of course. Thank you. Um, So I'm a political scientist. I completed my PhD in health policy uh, in the political science track at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. So a political scientist, but an interdisciplinary background. I'm currently a National Institutes of Mental Health postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Department of Healthcare Policy. And I'm currently a visiting and incoming assistant professor in Cornell's public health program. Regarding my research, I study health politics. So I am interested in policy outcomes and how they affect health and health equity. My research overall seeks to understand why governments develop policies that distribute goods and services to the most disadvantaged. And here I'm thinking about persons living in deep poverty, often with multiple health and behavioral health conditions, who often require aid to remedy these conditions, yet we see so many times uh, that policies are often insufficient or few and far between. And Also regarding my research, I also want to emphasize that in addition to my academic research, I am committed to conducting relevant translational research and disseminating that research to relevant stakeholders and policymakers in order to improve public health policymaking in design and delivery. And so some of this work that I have done includes uh, with governments, including the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. I also am a part of the Scholars Strategy Network and the Harvard Initiative on Health and Homelessness that focuses on research translation and dissemination to community partners. So why don't we start with a little bit of, of brush clearing. You, you begin the book by uh, making the claim that homelessness is a public health problem. And I think that um, it is perhaps for many people not the first way that they think of, of homelessness and people experiencing homelessness. So, so talk just a little bit about how you think of the problem, and then we will turn to, to your examination of it. Sure. No, that's a great, great question and something that I 
uh, hear a lot when we're thinking about homelessness and why we should think about homelessness as a public health problem specifically. So in the United States, millions of Americans experience homelessness at rates that are similar to or actually higher than other indicators of morbidity and mortality. We can look at the number of Americans who are diagnosed uh, with uh, opioid substance use disorders in the United States. This is about 1.8 million Americans every year which is significant, and this is categorized unequivocally as a public health crisis when we're thinking again about the primary drivers of morbidity and mortality in the United States. The number of Americans who experience homelessness in the United States uh, eclipses this by magnitudes. Um, The number is at least 3.5 million Americans. I will say that this number alone is just the number of Americans age 18 to 25 who experience homelessness annually in the United States. So when we're thinking about magnitude and when we're thinking specifically about the extent to which homelessness has adverse effects for morbidity and mortality across the life course, this is everything from educational to job achievement, when we're thinking about the social determinants of health, to direct effects on uh, mortality, people experiencing homelessness in sheltered locations have mortality rates that are three times higher than the general population, and people experiencing unsheltered or typically chronic homelessness experience mortality rates eight times higher than the general population. So this is why I categorize homelessness as a public health outcome, because its effects on health, again, when we're thinking about morbidity and mortality, which are our primary indicators of public health challenges when we're thinking about population health, homelessness is very substantial. So this is a book that is... is, is interested in understanding how localities organize their responses to homelessness in their particular places and how that varies. So let's again start with with just sort of broad overview. What should we know about how localities organize their uh, policies and their deliveries of services to homeless people? Sure, that is a great question. Um, This is something that I became really interested in because we know very little about this, which might be surprising uh, to to many people because we know so many different things about different healthcare institutions and public health systems, but we know almost nothing about systems of governance for solutions to homelessness. So I'll tell you a little bit about what that system is. Um, and then what the what the book adds to that. So the system is known as the continuums of care, and this uh, could easily be conflated with the continuums of care that we talk about in healthcare and moving different people, you know, from one part of the healthcare system to the other. But what these are are these are actually federally designated entities, most of which are locally organized and align with municipal jurisdictions that receive federal funding to address homelessness in their jurisdictions. And the interesting thing about the continuums of care and what the book finds is that the majority of the time they are not a part of municipal government or that municipal government, which we typically think of in public health, is one of the primary deliverers and of public health policy. Um, municipal government is typically not involved in designing solutions to homelessness. Um, and so these continuums of care are mostly 
pretty low-resourced uh, collections of non-governmental actors. And the this is where we know really little about them. We don't really know about how they're organized in terms of who is leading the continuums of care, what different organizations are involved, you know, whether that's shelter organizations, other nonprofits, hospitals, things like this. So it's a pretty broad category or, or group of entities that are responsible for all working together and using federal funding to design and then implement solutions to homelessness. And and often that coming together of those non-governmental organizations is explicitly in response to a request for proposals, right? They are they are coming together not because they have identified working together as the best solution, but because they need to do that in order to make themselves eligible for pools of federal funding. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I I, I love that question because I actually think it's both. So the way that so. You, in order to receive federal funding, you have to establish a continuum of care. Um, but to do that, the actors first have to come together and then designate the continuum of care. But yes, then to continue to receive federal funding, they do have to work together across these propo- to design this proposal to receive funding and identify their different issue areas about homelessness in their jurisdiction. And so... What you find looking at at sort of the broader patterns before we home in on Mm -hmm. the case studies, that something like 40% of the municipalities in your data set actually... Um, have those government, those those governance systems, those continuums of care, uh, organized through city government? Correct. Yes, that is correct. So, I mean, this, I mean, you know, I, I've sort of known this for a while, and it still manages to surprise me, right? When I see <laughs> it, it's like, wait, how can these services not? have city agencies that are responsible for delivering them. But in most cases, that that is not the case, right? These are non-governmental organizations that, that may or may not interact with city government in different kinds of ways. But these are not programs and policies directed in most places by the city itself, right? Exactly, exactly. So in my research in the book, I'm focusing specifically on solutions to chronic homelessness. And one of the reasons I do this is obviously as a public health problem, as we've discussed, it is such... has disproportionate effects on morbidity and mortality, but chronic homelessness is also a huge priority area for the continuums of care in addressing homelessness. It's a, it's a target population. And so uh, I was assuming that if there was going to be more engagement at the policy level with municipal governments, that chronic homelessness would be one of these things, again, because it is such a huge priority and it's been pushed and incentivized by the federal government. Um, But when I was looking at the proportion of municipalities, again, where their jurisdictions are receiving federal funding to address solutions to homelessness, about only 40% have have a formal policy or an informal policy too, because these can take so many different forms. And so, right, just as you're saying, this is this is surprising. Um, in uh, new research that I'm doing, um, this estimate may actually be lower. When I survey the continuums of care themselves, it looks like about 30% um, uh, of the continuums of care work explicitly with municipal government. So this obviously has really big implications when we're thinking about um, different uh, the ability to design 
design and deliver these programs that are facing these really highly marginalized groups. And when you're talking about supportive housing here, you're talking about uh, principally housing first policies, which is, I think, fair to say both among researchers and practitioners, consensus is that that, that is state of the art in, in how to most effectively deal with long-term homelessness. Talk a little bit about what that is and what it looks like generally. Yes. Uh, housing first and permanent supportive housing. Yep. Yes. Um, yes. So you are correct. I think at this point we have about four decades of evidence that when we are solving uh, chronic homelessness specifically, the best approach is housing first or permanent supportive housing, um, which is really just providing barrier-free housing to individuals uh, with multiple comorbidities um, and often um, co-occurring behavioral health and substance use disorders. Um, and when I say barrier-free, I mean uh, traditionally, housing had been provided conditional on behavior changes like sobriety, um, but we now know, uh, based on really rigorous research again across four decades, um, that when you just give people a place to live and then simultaneously offer at their at their discretion access to medical services as well as social supports. And, and behavioral health uh, supports that the stability of housing improves exponentially. So it, it is the best solution that we know to address chronic homelessness in the United States and, and in the world. There, this has also been tested in a variety of different settings. Yeah. So let's turn to your case study. So you're looking at three cities, San Francisco, Atlanta, and Shreveport, um, interested in these questions, right? Sort of how are these, these uh, uh, policies and, and, and systems of, of service delivery organized, organized? What is the role of the, 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 the locality in that? And how well do they work? So why don't we start with San Francisco and talk a little bit just about sort of describe what it is uh, uh, we know about uh, the role that the municipality plays in San Francisco. Sure. Yes. So San Francisco is an interesting case. And I'm sure many of the listeners, if you've been to San Francisco, uh, it may be very salient to you just because the visibility of homelessness is so high in San Francisco. San Francisco is an interesting case uh, for the research because it actually is a very, very high capacity jurisdiction um, and maybe in many ways a best case if we were trying to think about, okay, well, how does this historically decentralized low-resourced system um, that doesn't involve municipal government, how does this work on the ground in different places? San Francisco has and has had a municipal-level permanent supportive housing and housing-first policy since the mid-1990s, and they led a lot of this policy development nationally. They really pushed the housing-first movement and within that, the continuum of care is organized as a part of local government or municipal government in San Francisco. They actually have their own Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing now, um, and that was just separated out from the Department of Public Health um, in the in the uh, 2010s. So they they have they have a lot of bureaucratic capacity and you know formal institutional structures and policies about solutions to homelessness and chronic homelessness and in addition san francisco again i'm sure as most readers know uh, is also unique in terms of its fiscal resources. San Francisco is a very wealthy jurisdiction, and unlike many other municipalities in the United States, has a has a tax base where they actually use tax dollars to fund uh, solutions to homelessness. So 
in many ways, it would seem that, okay, if anyone can get this right, uh, it would likely be San Francisco or jurisdictions like San Francisco, where they have the policy capacity and the resources to do this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And yet. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> so what, so what, what went wrong? Why does that not turn out to be the case? Yes. So what my research finds, um, and, you know, this is obviously, again, illustrated, if you've been to San Francisco, just asking, well, why is the crisis of homelessness so persistent uh, in San Francisco and and so severe? Um, And I find that there are substantial implementation challenges that persist, even after these formal policy structures that are in place that constrain effective responses to chronic homelessness um, and shape policy decision making. And in San, oh, so, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Keep going. Um, in San Francisco, this really comes down to two things: um, representation and uh, and the political economy. Um, and I can talk more about this, or let me know if you you have a question. Yeah, no, Keith. I mean, so so part of it you're talking about sort of the the role that the state plays, and then the way the role that that local uh, rich people and businesses, to put it crudely, play. Correct. Yes, exactly. So I'm talking about two things. So and I'm really glad that you broke it down into the actors themselves. Um, Because what we end up seeing is this this fragmentation. So San Francisco does not have the issue of decentralization, right? They have overcome that they have a lot of policy capacity, they have a municipal role. Um, But what persists in San Francisco is policy fragmentation and policy conflict. And this happens across two levels. First, um, across uh, policy conflict between the municipally organized continuum of care and business businesses and uh, wealthy homeowners, or who I collectively call economic elites. And then also between the state um, and the policy conflict between state actors and the local jurisdiction might be surprising to many readers because California has been so involved in uh, homeless policy and behavioral health services um, over you know many years, but really over the last decade. And so, but that policy conflict um, in both cases just leads to implementation failures where San Francisco just really isn't able to get a lot of these policies on the ground and they stagnate at the decision-making phase. And one of the consequences, particularly when you look at the role that the economic elites play is circling back to where we began, is that they wind up fighting for criminal justice-based mm-hmm. approaches rather than public health approaches, correct? Yes, yes. And this is something that is persistent across all three of the case studies is the use of criminal justice solutions, specifically policing uh, to target behaviors associated with homelessness, as opposed to these evidence based permanent supportive housing and housing first solutions. And the criminal justice approaches conflict directly with housing first solutions. Um, They come in two forms. One are these civil penalties where we see 
um, forced removal of people experiencing homelessness from different jurisdictions. So they're not formally criminalized. They're not, you know, taken to jail, but they their property is confiscated or again, they're, they're forcibly removed from different neighborhoods, especially highly desirable neighborhoods. And what this does is it interrupts access to services. It also interferes with outreach to these individuals if, you know, they're relocated to different parts of the city. And the way that, and, and similarly, the the, the criminalization um, happens in the same way, except it, there's an added layer then where people incur, uh, individuals experience homelessness, incur fines or are cycled uh, in and out of jail um, as a result of uh, the use of quality of life laws, um, which target uh, different behaviors associated with homelessness, um, like sitting on sidewalks or eating in public or, or camping, different things like this. Um, but economic elites, and this is business and wealthy homeowners um, will pursue these policies um, through many different channels. Um, and, and then they, and this plays out on the ground again by just interrupting the implementation of permanent supportive housing um, by disconnecting individuals from services. So why don't we turn to Shreveport, which along some dimensions anyway is is uh, 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 at the other end of the spectrum. Talk a little bit about what Shreveport does and how it does it. Sure. So Shreveport uh, is is very different from San Francisco um, and and from Atlanta. Uh, but I'll, I'll, since we were talking about San Francisco, I'll, I'll continue with that. So Shreveport um, is a jurisdiction where the continuum of care is completely separate from municipal government. Um, it and so this means that. It is institutionally separate, um, and but also in terms of resources. So the continuum of care is really just relying primarily on this federal funding and gets no local funding for their activities. Um, and then this ends up playing out in different ways from San Francisco, right, where, again, they have the policy capacity and the authority to do these different things, right? They have regulatory power. They have taxation. Shreveport doesn't have any of these things. So it uh, it actually plays out as a uh, voluntary policy space where when Shreveport is trying to do different things like implement their housing first prerogatives or reduce the criminalization of homelessness through different policing tactics, they can request, they can make these voluntary requests to different local government actors like the police, like, uh, like you know, the mayor, city council in terms of zoning decisions to build new permanent supportive housing or even to just build a shelter. Uh, but because they have no authority, they're highly constrained in their ability to really do anything. And something else I want to add, too, that um, I think may not be uh, as uh, as a salient just in terms of thinking about these authority constraints is that Shreveport is also just completely omitted from uh, participation in local government activities. So just because they aren't formally ingrained, we might think that, oh, well, they could still have a seat at the table in some of these decision-making processes, but they're actually almost, uh, the research, the case study showed that they were just not involved broadly. They aren't inv- invited to uh, municipal meetings they have a hard time getting in touch with different policymakers. And so again, what you brought up at the beginning when we're thinking about, well, how do these different policies play out on the ground? It's, it's pretty shocking that the entity that is responsible for you know, these really big policy tasks for ending homelessness in their jurisdiction 
can't really, you know, has a hard time participating in policy debates that are relevant to homelessness in their municipality. So we've got a, a, a almost entirely different system of, of resources and constraints in, in Shreveport than in San Francisco. Uh, how can we compare outcomes? Yes. So the the way that so it's actually intended for uh, these to both act as exemplar cases of these divergent outcomes, right? So the cases were selected from the national data set, and so Shreveport is exemplar of municipalities that have that are this totally separate system that are decentralized. They are they do not have a municipal level permanent supportive housing policy. So. We can make comparisons between Shreveport and Atlanta, I think, or Shreveport and San Francisco, I think, in some interesting ways. Um, but uh, the intent for generalizability is to think about these different types of cities that do have these policies or don't have these policies. But when we do make, when we can look at, despite how different these systems are, that there are still some of these persistent implementation challenges, both in San Francisco and in Shreveport, despite how different these and these systems are, um, that is is very interesting. And I think um, points to some broader implications about how we address homelessness in this country as a whole. Uh, so how does how does Atlanta, your third case study fit fit into to your thinking about this? Yes. So um, Atlanta is a direct comparison with San Francisco. Um, it is a municipality that does have a formal um, municipal supportive housing or housing first uh, policy, but it looks very different from San Francisco on two key indicators. One is the participation from state actors. So Georgia, um, as I'm sure uh, listeners know, has not expanded Medicaid which is um, a primary or is hoped to be a primary form of support in terms of health insurance and access to supportive services for um, individuals experiencing chronic homelessness. And then also in terms of population demographics, Atlanta is majority black and as again, I'm sure listeners know, um, people who identify as uh, black, black and brown Americans disproportionately experience homelessness in the United States um, as a result of wealth disparities stemming from um, strategic uh, oppression of black and brown communities in the United States over the history of the United States. Um, so Atlanta provides some very important insights um, in consideration of, of these different issues. Um, and another interesting thing about Atlanta when we're looking at uh, the the political development of this policy space, um, Atlanta came to have a municipal supportive housing policy more recently. Um, so Atlanta provides some insights into how that policy was adopted. Why did the municipal government get involved um, in ways that were much clearer in Atlanta because it was happening, um, I believe, between 2013 and in 2015. And in San Francisco, it has really just existed uh, for for decades. And again, they were there in the first wave um, of promoting housing first policies across the nation. So Atlanta provides more insights into that process of when and why municipal governments might get involved or not. So as, as we, we work our way toward concluding, Charlie, why don't, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about lessons and and let me ask the question this way so the the i'm in i'm in a 
I guess a small city. I mean, Manchester, New Hampshire, 125,000 people, give or take. Um, Largest and most diverse city in the state. We have the overwhelming majority of people experiencing homelessness in the state are here in my city. In fact, a stone's throw from where my office is along the river. If I'm going to sit down with uh, the director of public health and the mayor for the city, Um, What would you have me have them thinking about as they think about creating more effective solutions? That's a great question. Uh, there are, and now I'm, I'm unfortunately, I am not aware of the continuum of care structure um, in Manchester. Although New Hampshire has done a lot of uh, innovative things related to housing first, um, but I would be interested to see. But my first question would be, what is the structure of the continuum of care and specifically what is the role of municipal government, right? Do these actors have the authority to carry out these policy tasks or not? And relatedly, how does that fit into resources available to these actors? Do they have a you know, taxation is, is this a resource that they can pursue? Um, is philanthropy? It's New Hampshire. No, taxation (laughs) is not on the table. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that is a great point. Yes. Not taxation. Um, but just thinking about the different, um, economic, uh, revenue streams that are available to promote these policies in the first place, because we know that funding is a big issue, but funding, it doesn't get us the whole way there. We have to have authority structures so that these policies can be designed and delivered. Um, and related to that is, is representation, right? So then who's sitting at the table to make these decisions in the first place? Does the continuum of care do these actors that have all this expertise and knowledge about these policies on the ground, are they involved in these decisions? Do people with uh, lived experience of homelessness um, have a seat at the table? Likely not. So again, just thinking about um, the the, pol- the policy decision making structures that are in place. What what does this what does this mean, and how can we um, increase representation both institutionally um, and then also in terms of participation from people with lived experience to to improve the policies that are designed. You've been listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Charlie Willison, who is the author of Ungoverned and Out of Sight, Public Health and the Political Crisis of Homelessness in the United States, new from Oxford University Press. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen.